Welcome to the Two Roads Travel podcast. Two sisters, two journeys, one purpose. Changing perceptions and judgments around alcohol misuse. The impact on the drinker, family and society as a whole. The reading for today. Our only concern should be of our own conduct, our own improvement, our own lives. Too many struggle alone, so please remember us when you chat to someone that may need help. Remember, we also run a closed Facebook group for Daughters of Alcoholics. So for those that want more individual support, go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Daughters of Alcoholics. Our next episode is episode 27. We're talking to Dawn Dines about drink spiking. Please join us on the 6th of September to hear what Dawn has to say and you may be surprised by the most common way to spike a drink. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Two Roads Travelled podcast. In today's episode, Joe and Paula are talking to Lisa Boucher about codependency. This huge topic affects most people who have had to live with someone else's drinking. When people are codependent, their focus is on the drinker, much as the drinker's focus is on the alcohol. The parallels between the drinker and the family can then be seen in lots of different ways. Today's discussion will cover what codependency is and how family members can so easily get caught up in it. As well as that, Joe, Paula and Lisa will be looking at those parallels, how they impact on adult life and the family members after the drinker has sought recovery. Lisa Boucher is an award-winning author of Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in Drinking Culture. She's a frequent contributor on radio programmes, magazine topics and podcasts, where she talks about addiction, alcoholism, childhood trauma and how we can heal. She herself is a recovering alcoholic and has been sober for 31 years and so understands the complex nature of addiction and how childhood trauma is often at the root of what ails us. Although Lisa's a registered nurse, she still believes that traditional healthcare does little to incorporate the mind-body connection, nor does our current culture appreciate the healing power of nature. So let's find out what Lisa has to share and what we can learn about codependency. Here are your hosts, Joe and Paula. Hi everyone. Hello. This is Jo and um, today's episode we're going to be talking to a lady called Lisa um, who I've been following for quite some time on Twitter Um, and it's amazing I find to be able to connect with people. um, You know we've had sort of a Zoom call before this uh, and to be able to connect and understand what other people do um, rather than it just sort of being all online and you never really have a proper conversation. So it's been really nice and then obviously led from that was sort of conversations about the podcast and um, and as always, it's really good to talk to people that kind of know lots of different things, different angles, different perceptions. And um, I, I think I, w- I admire Lisa for her, how can I put this, um, frank and honest um, <laughs> uh, comments and opinions and views. And I think um, it's a lady after my own heart. So um, I am looking forward to, to finding out more. And um, Paula actually hasn't spoken to Lisa before. So um, I know that she's going to enjoy a lot of what she's got to say. So, um, yeah. So 
that's that's me, I suppose, for this for this little intro. Over to you. Hi, everybody. It's Paula. Um, yes, it's been a beautiful week this week. Um, kids finally broke up from school. I'm still working, um, especially through the COVID. I haven't stopped working, um, and I've upped my hours, which um, left me today being extremely lazy. Um, not really getting up until 11 but I have been productive since then I've dusted which is not a favorite thing of mine to do and I've done two loads of washing so I feel like uh, I have been productive but in a lazy kind of way um but uh, no all, all's good and uh yeah I'm really looking forward to this I think it's gonna be interesting so um obviously um from the intro you know the topic today is codependency um massive massive topic um and I always like to kind of go into a bit more detail about what that is. So in the interview, we're going to be talking about what codependency is and, you know, how the family and others get caught up in that. Um, also, what are the sort of parallels between codependency, the family and the drinkers actions, and then how that impacts us on our adult life, um, because obviously we can sort of um, learn those things as we're children and then, you know, they sort of continue into adult life and have like quite a big impact um and so and then how do we kind of get past that really so lisa's going to um introduce herself now and share a little bit about her story and what she does um and then we'll kind of get cracking into the topic for today so lisa welcome and thank you so much for um giving up your time today to talk to us thank you joe and paula i'm happy to be here speaking with you so as she said my name is lisa boucher and i'm a woman in long-term recovery I had 31 years sober on June 22nd of this year. I'm a child of an alcoholic, so I know all about this codependency business. My first husband was a raging alcoholic, Crazyville, we can touch on that. Um, my, my second husband is a drinker. We've been in a long-term marriage, so that's had its own challenges. So I feel like, and I've got siblings, you know, that have been touched by addiction. So I have been, I like to say I'm like a tea bag, which is perfectly British, right? That I've been steeped in it from all of these avenues. I mean, alcoholism, I've said on other radio shows and whatnot, I have been immersed in it since my first breath of life. I've never not been around an alcoholic. And there are times, honestly, where I'm like, God, I'm so sick of it. But here I am. I'm one myself. It is a challenging disease. It does affect the family in a, in a plethora of ways. And I think there are a lot of people out there really struggling um, not only with their own addiction, but like we're going to talk about today with the codependency issue of how it impacts an entire family. And they say that addiction affects no less than four other people. So I say in my book, Raising the Bottom, you know, we can isolate the drinker, but we cannot isolate the disease. It bleeds over everybody. I think that's yeah I think we both agree with that and I think the impact you know we do know well I suppose we know because we're in this sort of space and we've been there but there's lots of people I think that actually still don't know you know they still really have got no idea about the breadth and depth of this issue have they no I mean a lot of my clients um it's it's very common for them to say oh but they just don't understand or the wife doesn't understand or the husband doesn't understand and my mum just says get on with you know just stop it and 
it it does pull at my heart thinking please let me educate you um you know and take that stereotypical thought out of people's heads that it is more than having a drink it's it's a disease it's uh it's so much stronger than that you know at the end of the day if it was that easy then everyone would just put it down wouldn't they um well it would and it is hard to explain and that's why other alcoholics are the best at helping other because you can't really explain it to someone who can go have a, a drink and they go home and they don't have another drink for two weeks. They cannot wrap their brain around the obsession, the compulsion, the self-destruction. They yeah. just can't get it. I have um, an analogy that I used with Joanne because she likes order and she likes things nice and straight. So I said, just imagine if I came around your flat and I made every picture wonky and you weren't allowed to touch it. And just imagine the feelings that you'd be having churning inside yourself to want to fix it, but you weren't allowed. I said, that's a little taste of, of the desire and the want and the need of a drink. You know? Love that. I love that, Paula. It's already very... given me palpitations just no, thinking about that. That is great, though. That is a very visual because, yeah, everybody's first inclination is to straighten it up, right? Yeah. I love that. You need to act that. Get that out there. It's a <laughs> I have done it on occasions as well. <laughs> I love it. I love the word wonky, too. <laughs> I think when, when that she wasn't happy at all, actually, she just moved in her first house. And um, I turned everything upside down. And, uh, and I thought it was funny, but she, she gave me her wrath. I felt her wrath, rather. <laughs> I, I don't even remember that. Oh my, God. my memory's so bad. I probably did. Um, right, anyway. Um, uh, the thought of all oh, the wonky pictures. Not good. Um, okay, so codependency. Um, let's talk about what, what is codependency Lisa what can you give our audience a little overview is what is it okay so let's say you have an addict in the home or even if they're not a codependent person will have a very little personal identity of their own because they're so enmeshed in what's going on with you so the codependent person doesn't develop their own interests their values their um they don't really have a life because they're so focused on you. And the codependent person, little by little, will become sicker than the person, usually the addict or alcoholic, that they're focused on. So, I mean, it can, you know, let me just talk about it to help people maybe understand this. So, I had a sister in addiction for 40 years. And there's four of us, including myself. I have three other siblings. So my mother who was also the alcoholic in the family so for the longest time it was everybody was focused on her because of her outrageous antics and things that were going on in the home her complete inability to function or parent as her disease escalated then she gets sober and she knows all about this codependency stuff but you know i understand where she was coming from i think that mom guilt is one of the hardest guilts to let go of. 
and I'm very grateful that I got sober before I had my twins. So I didn't have to experience that. But from working with women for the past, you know, 28 years, I get it that that is so hard. And so I think that's what my mother was dealing with. She had this guilt, even though she had made her amends in her life, she like morphed into this amazing woman. But we were all in our 20s. So literally, she missed the first you know, two decades of our lives. And that guilt never went away on her deathbed. She died in 2011. She said, you know, she was still rehashing, are you sure you kids aren't resentful? And none of us held on to that guilt. Believe me, we did not, but she had struggled to let it go. So during my sister's addiction, my mother became her chief enabler even though she understood codependence, but it literally usurped her whole life. And every conversation you had with my mother, it was about my sister and my mother sending her money, the enabling, knowing full well. I mean, as a recovering person, I would say, mom, stop. You're enabling her. You've got to stop. Cut off. My mother just could not do it. And my sister did not get sober and crash and hit a very low bottom herself until my mother died. So when her chief enabler, you know, and it is so counterintuitive. I think this is where families really struggle. I have a neighbor that talked to me about her husband's daughter. He's been supporting her because she's mentally ill. She's not mentally ill. She's been using drugs and alcohol since she's been 17. I said, we've got to stop calling everybody mentally ill until they're sober for six months. Then when you have a clean baseline, then let's assess their mental health. But it does them a huge disservice to run around saying they're mentally ill. No, they're not. I'm also a registered nurse and I work in a psych ward and I'm seeing this and it drives me crazy. So back to the enabling. So, you know, the, the counterintuitive thing is we want to help that addict. So we think if we help them with a place to live or maybe we help them find a job or we help them financially so they don't have to struggle so much. All of these things do not work. What they do is enable the person to continue in their disease and to use every excuse in the book of why they're not functioning, why their life isn't what it could be or should be. But it's counterintuitive to watch someone suffer, especially when it's your child, for God's sake. That is the hardest bond. I think that the mother-daughter, mother-son, father-son, father-daughter, that parental bond with a child in addiction is extremely hard to say, okay, off you go. If you make it, you make it. If you don't, you don't. I mean, how do you do that? And I know I talk about in my book, there was a chapter, Heroin Heartbreak. A friend of mine, her daughter, she was in that vicious cycle of codependency with her daughter and her biggest fear. She would say, Lisa, my biggest fear is I will find her. I don't want her to die behind some dumpster. That cannot be how her life ends. And, you know, she went through this for probably longer than a decade of kicking her daughter out, the daughter going to jail, the daughter going to rehab. We all know that vicious cycle and those stories. And finally, I told her about this place here in Ohio called the Edna House, and it's a long-term recovery center for women. And you can live there and they teach you life skills and they're very strict. And if you're serious about recovery, it's a great place. And if you're not, they boot you out. They do not tolerate codependency there. Um, 
So her daughter, when the mother finally kicked her out and she knew she had nowhere to go and the mother took her to Cleveland and dropped her off and said, it's this or the streets, the daughter chose recovery. And she now has been sober and she's got two beautiful children and she's married and she got a life, but it took a decade or more of her mother enabling her in that vicious cycle of codependency before she had the strength to accept, I cannot control this addiction. It is so much bigger than me. And my daughter may die in my own bathroom because she kept finding her overdosed in the bathroom with a needle hanging out of her arm. So what is the difference? She can just as easily die in your own house, in her own home, which would be just as traumatic to walk in on that as it would be to get a phone call. So I don't know which one would have been worse, you know, and I think it took um, Ray, as, as I call her in the book, um, to accept that. But that is very hard. It took her, how do you get there? There is no easy way to get a person from total codependency to release, other than they have to get in so much emotional pain that they're ready to let go too. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, so much of that resonates and, and uh, you know, I totally agree with and I think that the whole counterintuitive stuff is really at the core and it's like people aren't prepared to um, you know, just try a little bit. They have to feel like they've done everything possible um, in their power to help this person. And, and what a bad person they would be if they didn't do that, you know, because if I don't help, that means I'm bad or I'm not a nice person or whatever, you know, what they perceive to be helpful is not actually necessarily helpful to the person that's drinking. Um, so I think that sometimes family members think they're helping, but actually they're not. Um, but like you say, it's counterintuitive to like not help somebody in need. Um, but obviously for the family members, as we sort of said before, um, the, the drink is very consumed and very focused on the drink and the family are very focused and consumed on the drinker. Right. And the people are not, no one is living a healthy life because of the, the focus. And so I know I myself went and got into Al-Anon um, after I was sober a number of years because I found myself with my grown sons focusing and getting worried about, are they drinking too much? And you know, blah, 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 because sadly they drink and I've warned them, they really shouldn't be with our family history. Our genetics are just terrible for alcoholism, you know, but so far they're doing fine. They're 30 and their lives have, have taken a, a really good trajectory so far. Will alcoholism bite them at some point? I don't know. It may, but I do feel that I gave them coping skills and I started to go to Al-Anon because I thought I don't want to be codependent and I want to give them the best chance of recovery that I can. And that is to be able to not focus on them and allow them whatever consequences come down the pike, whatever happens, happens. I can't control it. All I can do, they know about recovery. They've seen it, you know, living in a house with a drinker and a sober mom. So, you know, and they have coping skills. This is what it is. We have to, each of us take care of ourselves and do our own lives. And I do have a busy life. And with, you know, things like this and my book and my writing and I finished another book about letting go because I thought, you know, that's really the crux of a lot of this is really let go, find some spiritual power bigger than yourself that can handle these 
problems that are so large, we just cannot control another person. But it took me a very long time to really get that to sink in, that I can't control the choices that my sons make in their lives. And like I said, so far they've been good and I pray for them and that's about all I can do. Yeah, um, I was, you were, as you were talking, I was thinking, I've got, um, I've got a situation where I've had um, a client's parents phoning up. I've had the daughter, I've had the mother, I've had the father. And um, as much as I can see, um, they want to help. Um, and they are all in this codependency situation. Um, but I've had to reiterate to all three of them, one, I can't really talk to them. And two, it has to come from that person you know, and, um, and, and that also sort of reflecting on it as I was listening to you, my mum was obviously in that codependency and I never really realised that, you know, as, and, and it goes on to, I was thinking of, you know, how you get caught up in it. I mean, my mum was just being a mum and um, making sure I was all right, making sure her grandsons were okay. Um, but as it got worse and worse for myself, I was her whole life and I've never really, I, I've always been, and I always will be eternally grateful for the support my mum gave me. I mean, it, it's unconditional love. Um, but I probably needed um, a firmer hand and she probably became an enabler. She never gave me money. She never um, gave me drink. Um, I, I could, <laughs> quite cleverly source that myself um but the fact that she was looking after the house taking my kids to school cooking them tea that's that's her her way of doing it and I did become all of her life you know and uh and Joanne my other sibling and uh and her husband you know they all had to take second place to me and, oh uh, I get that that's what happens it becomes yeah. focused but you you touched on something Paula that is really complicates it is when kids are involved you know it's very it's much easier to cut loose an adult yeah but then when you've got the grandkids in there what do you do? I mean, because yeah. you don't want these poor kids to be in danger. You don't want them to be on the streets or taken away. So it is so complicated. And yeah. to toggle that fine line, you know, I think your mom probably did the right thing to look after those kids. Because what, what do you do? I mean, that is where it gets so complicated. And yeah. I just, that's, I guess, my biggest fear is I yeah. Oh, God. And I feel like, well, it's a natural instinct. You want to, um, you protect want to, children. you want, yeah, you want to protect them. You want to take their pain. You know, my mum, you know, did what she, she was, what I would do as a mum and what many people would do as a mum to try and fix it, to try and make it all better. Um, but unfortunately, um, the, the reality is I was the only one that could make it any better. And it was a, a waiting game for when I was ready. So what made you get ready? Um, <laughs> death. <laughs> yeah, um, I went for a checkup and never came out of the hospital and I don't remember any of it. Well, that might've yeah. been a blessing, right? Yeah, yeah. 
I think that um, also it's um, with the, the kind of codependency thing, you know, generally in life, we, we do things to help, you know, a friend, a family member, whatever that all works fine. Um, but when it comes to addiction, it's a whole different ball game, isn't it? And what we would normally do in life when we help people and, you know, help them out with money and stuff, it doesn't really apply in this space. Um, and I think that that can be quite hard for people because they obviously think like we said counterintuitive like our normal instinct is to always help people and everything um but i wonder how um where that line is between not enabling someone um and and you know in that codependency space but actually you know like safeguarding and doing the right thing in terms of children let's say more specifically um because there is it's it's a like you say it's complicated so you you know there is usually lots of confusion around this and it's like well well do i help or is that enabling you know that kind of thing well i think yeah it is there's a fine line there but you know one of the things is you don't do something for someone that they're capable of doing for themselves we don't just do it we wait till they ask and that's been huge for me to like wait till they say will you help me because it takes a little bit of humility to say i need some help mm -hmm. so standing back and again when there's small children involved I, I mean this is just my opinion i think we do have to make sure that they're safe so whether that means we protect the children and let the adult fall you know you can protect the kids while that parent because once they are inebriated or out of their mind or whatever if you've got the children and you're taking care of them you also can set boundaries that i'm not bringing the kids home now maybe that enables them to keep using but the kids are safe and as long as you're not enabling with groceries and this and that you know let them face their consequences so mm -hmm. it is it is hard when kids are involved i think you have it's to knowing it's knowing when to pull back isn't it? it it really is to know that um you know you don't want these kids to suffer needlessly but you can also protect them bring them i'm just going to say for if i had a grandchild in that situation i would want to bring the, the baby with me and let the adult do what they have to do um yeah, yeah. let them crash and burn yeah, and, and, and unfortunately, um, that's the alcoholic's um, path. They have to get to their lowest point, whatever it may be for them. Um, and as long as the children are safe, they have to do that because, like you say, they have to ask for help. They have to find their lowest ebb and ask for help themselves. Otherwise, it just won't work. Well, that's true. And for a lot of people, it is their kids do help them to like get sober sooner. I have talked to people that said they realized that their parenting was getting horrible or they drove drunk with their child and it scared them to death. And so they got sober. So things like that can be a turning point. Um, you know, we don't have to hit these horrible low bottoms. That's kind of what I'm all about because my mother did. And seeing that, you know, play out over 20 some years in front of me, I'm like, oh my God. So when my drinking was escalating 
and I noticed a progression because that's what alcoholism or drug addiction is, is this progressive disease that we want more and more to get the same effect because, you know, it goes back to the dopamine receptors in our brain. And so when my drinking really started to escalate, I quit because I didn't want to hit that low bottom. And I'm very grateful I didn't have my kids yet or any of that because I was traumatized as a child between my mother literally not being able to function, coming home, finding her under the dining room table, passed out in the garden. She would put food in the oven and never take it out of the package and the oven is smoking. I know it was this crazyville stuff. You know, it was just one debacle after another and the car crashes were numerous and sideswiping was like, oh my God. So I remember my father... Our dad, our dad was the man who went down the ma- down the pub to see a man about a dog and okay. came home with the dog and oh. kittens and anything else that anyone else was flogging in the pub. He would bring it home. <laughs> so, you know the madness that can ensue with addiction. I mean, it really is crazy for everybody mm. involved. It's just, it's sad. I mean, there's, there's some comic relief in it because sometimes it is funny, but it's not overall it's very no. different i think for like for the family members that are the ones that are kind of really so caught up in this you know in terms of how it impacts them i'm just sort of thinking back previous you know it's it's all in all encompassing all consuming all you ever think about is them and what they are doing what they might do what might happen um how you can do something to prevent those things from happening that haven't happened yet um you know if you know you're going round and around in your head if if i do this will this happen or if i don't do that will this happen you know if i don't answer the phone at three o'clock in the morning you know is he gonna kill himself is he gonna do this that or the other is she gonna do this and i think it's it's so yeah all-encompassing isn't it well I think you really touched on some good things there Joe because you know I think we have to look at too the codependent person is getting something out of this Mm -hmm. they get to feel a little bit more superior they get to feel needed Mm -hmm. Um, usually their self-esteem is not where it should be so they're getting something out of being the white knight I'm gonna save you they won't necessarily see that right they don't identify that and and sometimes they can become actually quite um upset if someone were to say that well they do and i will tell you (laughs) in my own relationship my husband you know we laugh about it now but i say to him when we met we were both drinking partying heavily and he loves to say oh i found you on the streets of columbus and blah 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 i was in a lovely townhouse with a girl roommate friend of mine my life was fine but he's created this scenario in in his head that i think is completely fiction and he's been saying it for the past 30 some years i'm like (laughs) stop it that is not at all how it was but i think he gets i said you know you love to think that you were the white knight that saved me And that's fine if that, but that's a delusion, truly. It's his delusion. And, but I tell him, you know, I said, there was something about your self-esteem. Why did you need to be needed? Why did you want to pick the girl who you thought was falling apart that you could fix? Exactly. So shame on him, you know, and we can laugh at this stuff now because over the years, you know, when I quit drinking, my husband was pissed. 
we were only married four years. And I think he felt like, whoa, this is a bait and switch. You know, I married this party girl. Now she's going to sober up. No more wine. No more that. I'm like, nope. So, and I told him, you know, this is what we have to do in recovery. I said, don't make me choose. I mean, you will lose. So if you have a problem with this, there's the door. You might as well get packing now because I was resolute. I'm done drinking. I do not want that life for me or us or if we have our future children. And that's just the way it went. But there was a couple years there on very shaky ground because I think he was, you know, the dynamics of any relationship change drastically. When one person gets sober, they reclaim their life. The codependent person is all of a sudden well, what do you mean? You don't need me to help you run your life. <laughs> you don't need me to help make decisions. You don't need me to clean up. Any they almost uh, lose their purpose. Don't well, they, they lose their identity, was all caught yeah. up in that addiction. Exactly. So they have to then reclaim their life. And, you know, I think the big $20,000 question is, why did the codependent person allow themselves to lose themselves in someone else? Why do you not think that you were worth more than focusing your entire existence on this other person? Often because they've been so, um, you know, attacked maybe or like trodden down by their parent um, that they've got absolutely no, it doesn't even come into their thinking, does it? That I, I'm important or what I feel, think and want to do matters. Um, uh, none of that. There's never any space for that for some people because, you know, they're so consumed with trying to survive the drama and chaos exactly. of living with a drinker. And that's yes. all they're doing is surviving. And, you know, if you're living with someone that's in that sort of space, you're not thinking, right, how can I look after my, especially if you're like five, you know, you don't, you haven't got the capacity to think in that way. So, it, and then by the time you sort of get older, then, you, you know, those pathways are well and truly, you know, trodden in, aren't they? And it's just become habitual. And so then you've got to start looking at how all of that codependency then starts affecting us in our adult life. Because if we've lived in that way, you know, as children, um, then how's it going to impact us predominantly in our relationships? And I think that's where people then go on to be rescuers. You know, um, that's the kind of um, man or woman or, you know, character that they start looking in for someone because that's what they, yes. Yeah, so that's all they know. And you're absolutely right. Yeah. But, you know, we can then make a choice, I guess, what, what comes to mind is if you find in your adult life that you have one bad relationship after another, that if you get involved with one alcoholic after another, at some point, you've got to step back and look at why am I, what is drawing me to these dysfunctional relationships? Yes, exactly. And the only way to, to heal is to be honest with yourself and say, okay, there's something in me that I need to fix so I don't keep attracting the same kind of dysfunction yeah. because you know water does seek its own level and, and why do you think it takes people so long to get to that point why do you think it takes people so long to actually recognize that or get that awareness i think we're attracted joe to what we're comfortable with not what's good for us yes. but what we're comfortable with like you said as children and and those neural pathways mm. are are already ingrained. So I think, you know, 
it's it's a trite message, but it's true. We are motivated to change by pain. And so you just hope that your pain tolerance is lower. Low. Like I know in recovery, <laughs> my pain tolerance is a lot lower now than it was when I was using. I had a very high tolerance for pain and drama and dysfunction. And again, you know, I missed the chaos as much as I missed the addiction. So I was addicted to chaos, you know, that lifestyle that those crazy makers bring mm -hmm. and that druggy drinking life brings. There's, you know, that adrenaline of the high highs and then the low lows and the drama drama. So, you know, we get something out of that. And mm -hmm. it wasn't until I decided to get sober and really started to get honest and also to know myself a little bit that you start to realize, okay, wait. I don't want that anymore. I deserve better. So we have to just, I, I say the one thing that will change your life is self-honesty. And that is the hardest truth to find. Yeah. And we, um, we've spoken before about the similarities um, that the person in addiction has, as well as the codependency. They're very, very similar. Um, and, uh, and I think they have to reach a level like the drinker has to reach a level when, when it's time to throw the towel in, when enough's enough. And I think as the alcoholic has to make that decision, so does the person in the codependency relationship or when they've been repeating those same habits of getting involved in the same situations that again, cause more chaos. It's, it's that time when you can, um, when you find it in yourself, it's time to make a change. You know? That's right. No, that's right. You're absolutely right. We have to decide that for ourselves that I deserve better. I remember doing my NLP course and um, my tutor saying, you know, I, the conversation was around why do they keep um, putting up with it? And he said, well, because the pain's not bad enough yet. And it's, you know, sometimes people say certain things, certain comments, and it just sticks with you. And that was, that was definitely one that really sort of stuck with me. And I just thought it's interesting, isn't it? That we have to, you know, we, we're, like you say, we're driven by that pain and then we'll change when it gets too much to cope with. Um, yeah. One last thing I'd like to ask you is, is um, around the, how does the codependency of the family member inhibit the recovery of the drinker if they're at that stage if you know the person decides to recover how does that codependency that's been well and truly developed then impact on on that where how well that person can recover or does it I, well uh, yeah it does and i think you know that the worst thing about codependency is we will make excuses for people instead of making them accept full responsibility for their actions. And so if the person decides, let's say someone decides to get help for their addiction, the, the codependent people around them, they need to get help too so that they don't continue on in that enabling pattern where you make excuses if the person would slip or if the person is not doing what they need to do to take care of their recovery. The codependent person is, well, they've been working so hard or, oh, well, they're tired. Or, you know, you have to literally get that person help too mm -hmm. so they will be able to detach. It's all about detachment. Mm -hmm. And I know in my own family, like my mother, she died with 30 years recovery. My father never got any help. 
Sadly, he did not do anything to get any help. He is unchanged. He's a little better because her recovery kind of trickled down to him. But a lot of his crazy behaviors remained the same. Honestly, I don't know how she put up with it. But um, he was as every bit of as controlling, tried to be. She was, once she got sober, boy, she really fought back and, and there, a lot of it stopped because she was, she reclaimed her power. But I think my father still felt very untethered by her new, um, he was no longer needed in the way that he got to be. He didn't get to control her in the ways that he used to control her with money, with where she went. I mean, he was as sick as she was. And um, so, yeah, I think it's just very important. It is a family disease. We cannot underestimate how it really does impact everybody. And I think it, the best situation, the best scenario is if the whole family gets treatment. Yeah, and I think, you, you know, something you touched on was a, one of the big things I see in Daughters of Alcoholics is, is this lack of identity. Because when you have focused, it's a bit like parents and kids, I guess, like you focus so much of your life on your child, then sometimes you start to lose your own, you know, sense right. of self and you, you kind of stop doing all the things you used to do as an individual and your life just becomes your kids. So it's in that sort of parallel in my head you know similar maybe because you know you spent so long focusing on this person and the drinker and the chaos and how, how it's made you feel and all of that stuff and you get so focused on that well you don't even think about well what what do I like what are my strengths what how do I want to spend my time um what lights me up what fulfills me you that what nothing that doesn't even come into your thinking it's just all about this person and then when they start to get well like you say it's like that lack that inability to feel needed and you know you're just like well who am I now I don't know what to do with myself and sometimes I think I've seen you know people acting out um, and creating situations in order to sabotage things um, because the, like they are so used to that chaos they don't like things to kind of come back to some sort of normality and quietness boring. it's boring and so they in a sense subconsciously create this you know chaotic situation um in order for them to then step in and save the day which is a situation they've created right no which is exactly unhealthy right. right and that's why the whole family does need to get treatment so that you don't continue on in those patterns of dysfunction that enable the destructive using behavior or, or the white knight, I'm going to save the world. But, you know, we have to save ourselves. Everybody has a gift and focus on like what, what you're interested, what do you want to do with your life? Focus on that instead of the other person. It's just much healthier. Well, I think that's a, a fantastic place to, um, to sort of bring the podcast episode to an end. And I, I just want to thank you so much. You know, you've got such a wealth of experience and, you know, I really do admire you and the work that you do. So a really big thank you for, for being thank on. Thank you. Thank you for thank having Thank you, Lisa. Me. It's been a pleasure meeting and talking with you yes, today. You too, Paula. Good to see you, ladies. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you. Thank you.